Welcome to Grit Nation. I'm Joe Cadwell, the host of the show, and in this episode, I will be speaking with Katrina Owenstad, author of The Weekend Effect. This book addresses the life-changing benefits of taking time off and challenging the cult of overwork and makes the case for reclaiming our weekends to increase creativity, productivity, and success in our lives. Katrina and I open our conversation by discussing the historical origins of the weekend and how the concept of having two days off in a row is a fairly new construct. Next, we'll discover the role organized labor unions played in establishing the weekend and the fight for better living standards for its members. Later, we unpack how the emergence of technology has begun to blur the lines between on and off shift and why trying to curate the perfect weekend can leave you feeling drained. And we'll end our conversation by giving you the information you need to take back your weekends so that you come away rested, relaxed, and ready to tackle the week ahead. After this episode, be sure to visit the show notes where you can find more information to help you dive deeper into the subject. And now on to the show. Katrina Onstad, welcome to Grit Nation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Katrina, for taking your time to be on the show. I'm really excited to introduce your book, The Weekend Effect, to my listeners. And before we get started, I cannot help but address the irony that we are both doing this conversation, having this conversation on a Saturday morning, digging into <laughs> our weekends. But I really do appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to talk to us more about it. So, Katrina, how did you get interested in writing a book about the origins of the weekend? Yeah, it's interesting. This book is a few years old. And um, at the time, I was a, a freelancer. So I am, and I still sort of identify as uh, one of the ranks of the gig economy, um, even though right now I do have sort of a straight job. But I've always gone back and forth as a writer between being self-employed and, and having more conventional uh, work relationships. So I was, you know, feeling that exhaustion. I had little kids and um, my partner was working long hours. I was working long hours. I felt like all we were doing was working. And then in the spaces in between working moments, we would try and parent. And the other part of existence, i.e. having a life, was basically shelved. And, um, and of course, I was not alone in this feeling. And I'm, there was, you know, the book opens with a me tucking my son in to sleep and him, him saying like, wait, is, was that the weekend? Did the weekend just happen? And sort of realizing that there was very little uh, delineation between work and leisure in our lives. Um, and so I wanted to dig into this phenomenon and find out if other people were experiencing the same kind of work-life blur and find out who was doing it better, <laughs> who was living and working better and what, uh, you know, what we can all do as a society to sort of improve this uh, state of being. And having read your book, you really did get into the the, the mechanics of the weekend, the, the sacred 48 hours, and sort of the origins of even the term the weekend. Uh, from my understanding, the term the weekend or the concept of the weekend wasn't really established until the late 1800s, uh, right when people kind of switched from an agrarian sort of lifestyle to a more industrial sort of lifestyle. And, and tell us more about that. Yeah, well, I mean, it is really interesting. I, I mean, the weekend is, um, 
is all about is about time, right? I mean, time is sort of an arbitrary construct that humans came up with a long time ago to, you know, impose some order. Um, and of course, the first idea of a break from work is uh, came from religion, from organized religion in the Sabbath. And, you know, Judaism, Islam, Christianity all um, have baked into uh, the, their ethos, uh, the idea of, of a day off for prayer and um, investigation beyond work. And uh, the idea of the Sabbath actually comes from from Exodus, from the Pharaoh getting the slaves to keep building and building and expanding and more and more. Does this sound familiar in 2022? He was working them to death. Working them to death. And God was like, no, my people got to have one day off, right? And one day where their identities aren't just about working for the man. And, and uh, so that idea of kind of, sanct- you know, some sacred time, a sanctification of time, that, that there has to be some element in each week um, where people can be divorced from their work work selves and remember um, the rest of their identities um, started started there. And then, of course, um, you know, it was the there were iterations of, of time off and leisure throughout as kind of as work changes, leisure changes. And then with the advent of the Industrial Revolution, suddenly work was uh, ubiquitous, <laughs> especially for people who were in factories and they were really working you know, being worked to the bone. And so it was really with the kind of rise of organized labor that we saw the rise of the weekend because those were the people um, and groups that fought to get some of that time back to return to that idea of, you know, sanctify like a sacred corner of each week where workers did not have to be workers or they could also be workers and also people outside of work. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was a, you know, you know, I know on this show and you know this history very well, that in the late 1800s, um, this was, that organized labor really started with this fight for an eight hour workday and for a week, for a weekend, it was a long, slow, like a hundred years of these kinds of fights and people dying and, um, you know, bloodshed and of course, um, Haymarket Square in Chicago and the beginning of Labor Day and all of those fights um, landed us with something that looked like for about a century, uh, two days off the Saturday and the Sunday. Um, and now, of course, that's very different. So the weekend's origins, basis in, in re- religion. And once the Industrial Revolution came along, like you say, people were being worked to the bone. And we're not just talking 10-hour, 12-hour days. There were shopkeepers working 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week, and they really began to, to, as we'll get into later, begin to feel the effects. The productivity wasn't exactly high when you're just exhausted all the time. So labor started to push back against these sort of extremes. And you had mentioned the the rise of organized labor in 1881, May 1st, the the Haymarket Affair. And uh, you went into that a a bit in your book. What what can you tell our listeners about the Haymarket? Yeah, it was 30,000 people, right? Marching through Chicago. Imagine that. Imagine what portion of the population that was at that time. And it was for a manageable work life. Work life balance, yeah. Yeah. And I think we kind of forget when we think about what it was that was being fought for that so much of it was really about time. Yeah, there there were slogans. You know, there was uh, eight hours work, eight hours for rest, and I think it was eight hours for what you will. What you will, yeah. 
Yeah, and 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 there was a rallying cry because we, we realized that yeah, the the people that were truly profiting from this system were not the the factory workers, were not the meat packing workers, but it was was the capitalist. And so organized labor had to band together. My organization, the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners of America, was established in 1881, uh, just a few years before the Haymarket uh, tragedy occurred, where blood was spilled, where a bomb had gone off, where people were put on trial and actually executed for their part in organizing to get an eight-hour day, which kind of leads into the, the the establishment of the weekend. So, yeah. It, <laughs> yeah well, well, thank you. <laughs> so, so. Uh, th- the, the the capitalistic view though is that you know people are good the more we work the the more we produce and the more we produce the more profit is made but science shows that it's not quite the case and when your book sort of points this out this correlation that overwork doesn't necessarily mean more productivity no and in fact the inverse is often is proven true right that societies where people um, work fewer hours are actually their overall productivity is actually higher. And there's a famous study from World War I. So we're talking about 100 years ago, and it's been um, rebooted many times, and it keeps proving true, which is just at that time, they were measuring how many munitions were produced in a factory by workers. And they found that after about, you know, so if we say 40 hours is like a quote-unquote ideal work week. Um, so let's say we tack on 10. At 50 hours, uh, okay, people are beginning to fatigue because produce less widgets, munitions, whatever it is, beyond 50 hours, the quality of the work just declines precipitously, right? So errors are introduced, the amount of labor output is decreases significantly. So it's actually not, there's no, not really a correlation between like time necessarily between time and, but like there's a, there's a cutoff point, right? There's a cutoff point at which workers are no, it's no longer beneficial. But I think what's been interesting in the last, you know, 30 or 40 years is that the optics around busyness have shifted so much that in fact, the logging a lot of hours is suddenly something we sort of venerate. It's a badge of honor for a lot of people. Sure, sure. Fatigue, right? People um, will say, how are you? Oh, I'm so tired. If someone were to say, I feel really rested, my life is full, uh, (laughs) you know, then that those people actually, and there's been some research around this where there there was a study, I can't remember what it was out of, but they looked at two online dating profiles, they were fake, and one in which someone described themselves as, you know, not, not particularly overworked, but you know, creative and busy with their inner lives and their non-work lives. And then the other one, someone was like, I am exhausted. I work all the time. And that person was deemed more powerful in the eyes of people looking at these two profiles side by side, that someone who is exhausted and overworked has more status, um, which is a real inversion of what we used to think of because it used to be that the leisure class, that the badge of honor was to work less. Right. That's what we strove for. Right. Right. Um, but now there's a, and that this is a great slide trick of capitalism to make us believe that our value lies in exhaustion and overwork. And that works very well for the people who profit from that exhaustion and overwork and not so well for the people who experience it. Yeah, that's for sure. And in, in considering, you know, the income inequality of people that are working in the warehouses on the, on the, uh, the kill floors of industrial slaughterhouses that are literally working themselves, you know, these extremely long hours day in and day out, 
uh, an average CEO, I've heard anywhere from 300 to now 900 times what their average worker makes. And it's just a, a ridiculous equation to think that on the low end of the spectrum, that that anyone is worth 300 times what the average worker of their company should should make. But the fact is, it doesn't matter how much time we call our gig economy workers are putting in, they're never going to get. <laughs> like, it's not as if the the 1% is working longer hours, right? Like, that's not the correlation isn't, isn't hours invested at higher income. So For, for sure, there's only so many hours a day. Yeah, they're, they're on a hamster wheel, they're on that treadmill. And so what we strove for for so long to, to establish these sacred 48 hours, these two days back to back, seems like it's it's being chipped away. And it's uh, if people are lucky enough to get two days in a row nowadays, it's that's you know a, a pretty valuable perk. But a lot of people aren't necessarily taking Saturday and Sunday off like when, when we were kids, you know, uh, and the, the folks would have Saturdays and Sundays off and you would find time for leisure. Now people are sometimes getting a Tuesday or a, or a Friday and, and it's just sort of jumbled up and mixed up, especially with the gig economy workers that you had mentioned. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the biggest shift in how we work in the last half century, right? Is this rise of contract work and precarious work. And so there's a, like a kind of disjuncture between, uh, I think, this, this dated concept of what it means to have a job and the reality, that sort of patchwork reality that most workers, many workers are living in their day-to-day lives. Like I live in Toronto and recent surveys show that over 50% of the people in, the, in our city, we're the biggest city in Canada, are in, will be classified as precarious workers. So they're contract workers that you know don't necessarily have benefits. We are lucky enough in Canada to not have our healthcare tied to our work. Which, which to me is the most unimaginable, um, terrifying situation. <laughs> and I think it dictates everything. This conversation about work uh, is so tied to healthcare in the United States. Um, but we do still, we are, uh, these workers, these precarious workers are unprotected and, and vulnerable um, to, you know, no sick days, pensions, all those kinds of protections that we associate with having a job, quote unquote, um, these people do have jobs, but they don't have the security that goes with them. Yeah, there can be uh, kind of an inverse there. It can be too much for being worked too much, or there could be sort of a, a lack of hours that keep you from achieving basic necessities like healthcare for yourself and your family. And coming from the perspective of someone who is in an organized labor union, the Carpenters Union, coming from the perspective of you know living in the U.S., it it does seem, and from what I've I've heard and experienced when I lived overseas myself, that other countries seem to be doing this balance a little bit better. And everyone, you know, thinks of the uh, the romantic notion of the French always having the uh, the, the weekends with family and food and, and wine. And to some extent, that is true. We we tend to work more, I think, as a nation than any other nation on on the planet, with the exception of perhaps Japan. Is that true? Yeah, I think that's true. And actually, England also has, so there's a little bit of a hole in the EU, you know, celebration there, when they're not in the EU anymore, I should say, but in the European kind of fantasy that we have of them. But yes, for sure, of industrialized countries, the United States, Japan, longer hours, and sorry, but not as productive (laughs) overall. Um, So there you go. But I do think, yeah, there's a mindset um, in countries that have have been working through this crisis of work that where there's a kind of 
revelation about overworked labor forces not being beneficial, you know, so protections and regulations being put in place um, to make sure that people aren't overworked. Um, Those serve not just employers, but cultures as a whole. So it's been interesting, like, I mean, France, and there are, you know, obviously no country is uh, as ideal as we w- would hope it would. And there's problems, of course, in, in how things are done in France. But an interesting um, piece of progress there is the right to disconnect laws, which protect workers in certain work environments from receiving emails on the weekends or being uh, their bosses are not allowed to contact them outside of work hours. And that is, I mean, that's really huge because, of course, we haven't talked about this yet, but like the engine of so much of this work-life floor is technology, right? Is that everybody has their phones in their pockets and that I think that affects, uh, you know, white collar workers and blue collar workers because you're, you know, you can be called in and gig workers, of course, ultimately, literally their, their app is their boss, right? The phone is their boss. So, you know, we're beginning to see some legal uh, frameworks uh, in countries like France, the Netherlands, Germany, they're beginning to, their laws are catching up with the realities of contemporary work and some protections are beginning to be put in place. And in fact, here in Toronto, we just, in Ontario, we just last month, there's now um, some legislation coming in, our own right to disconnect laws. But of course, that they're only um, applicable to very specific segments of work, right? And we haven't had that conversation about what a worker really is and how vast this need for reform is. Um, So that's nice for government workers who can't be contacted on the weekends, but for an Uber Eats driver, it's a completely different uh, situation, even with these protections that we're inching towards. Yeah, and as those borders become more and more fuzzy with the advances in technology, like you say, it it, it becomes very very difficult to to delineate between the two: my time at work and my time to have fun. So, aside from say, we'll get away from the labor aspect just a little bit, but aside from technology, you know, encroaching into our weekends, as people, we seem to 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 do a lot of it this damage to our free time ourselves. And you, you and your book had talked about, you know, overscheduling of your, your kids and, and being from Canada, hockey plays a huge part of a, an average uh, Canadian family's life. And next thing you know, if it's not work dipping into your time on the weekend, it is trying to curate either the perfect weekend or overscheduling everything down to the last minute so that at the end of the weekend, you actually come away feeling a little more exhausted than rejuvenated. And what can you tell us about that? Grit Nation is brought to you by Union Home Plus. For over two decades, Patrick Town, the director of Union Home Plus, and his team of finance and real estate professionals have been providing the safest, most cost-effective resources to help union members buy, sell, and finance their home. For more information, be sure to check out the show notes in today's episode or visit unionhomeplus.org on the web. Union Home Plus, helping union families find their way home for over 20 years. Grid Nation is also sponsored in part by the Martinez Tool Company. Veteran-owned and made in the USA, the Martinez Tool Company has a variety of hand tools that you can't get anywhere else except straight from Martinez themselves. From titanium-handled hammers with replaceable heads and grips to rapid squares with accuracy unparalleled in the industry, Martinez Tools delivers when it comes to quality, durability, and design. So if you're the type of builder who demands the most out of your tools, be sure to visit martinestools.com today. Martinez Tools, built tough and built to last a lifetime. And now back to the show. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a reality that, you know, many people are experiencing, which is that, you know, a lot of people, I think, particularly with families, but not not so only with families are kind of living lives, running their families like little corporations, right? Like we're scheduling people, our, our children, the same way a CEO would schedule, you know, his or her week. Um, so, and I think that this is even subconsciously a kind of internal, it's like an internalization of this kind of capitalist productivity mindset, right? Like that the idea of, true downtime where maybe unoccupied time space where there's nothing happening suddenly makes people anxious. There's actually a word for this it's called chronophobia. It's like fear of free time, right? Um, because we are really getting, we're programmed, right? To maximize our time, our value, our identities, everything is tied together. So what does it mean to have, uh, you know, your eight-year-old, just like lounge around the house? Does it make people itchy? I think it does a little bit often, right? Like, oh God, I got to get that kid in. This is a competitive world. They should be in their French lessons or with their tutor or, you know, we can't just be in house league in Canada. This is always a conversation. Like it can't just be house league hockey. It's got to be select hockey because achieve, 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 right? And I don't think we, you know, of course we do this so much out of love and we see our kids' talents and we want um, the most for them. And, and if we can afford it, we want to expose them to these kinds of experiences. And I don't think it's, you know, uh, necessarily an act of cruelty by any means. It comes from love often. But I think the end result is that we are imposing this cult, cult of busyness um, into our domestic spheres and onto our children. Um, and, uh, you know, we are creating a lot of anxiety in, in young people, right? Um, my husband's a teacher and he sees it uh, daily that these kids, this young people are experiencing unprecedented levels of anxiety. And of course we're COVID. So everything is like, ah, <laughs> it's hard to talk about anything anymore without that uh, amplification. But um, it's a lot of pressure to make sure that our time is productive and we miss out. We miss out on a lot of, there's a lot of value and unstructured and empty time. Yeah, you feel like you're slacking if you don't have every last minute schedule it out. But I think there is, like you say, a lot of value to just having that free time, the spontaneity that comes from it, the uh, a little bit of boredom. I mean, I remember as a kid just being a little bit bored on weekends and go outside and play, create your own world. And, and having uh, listened to you on another show, I, I understand, Katrina, that was sort of the catalyst for you to get into writing. You were bored and you decided to, to start writing and you found that you liked it. Yeah, I mean, I yes, I also write fiction and um, I've been a journalist. And uh, yeah, I think that that, was because I was kind of a weird kid who was just by herself a lot. And sometimes that's not great, but sometimes it was. Like, I definitely had to go into my imagination. Um, and I was sort of left alone to do that, right? And um, leaving our kids alone can actually be a great gift. And we do know that for everybody, regardless of age, um, Creativity comes from boredom. Like we, we are kind of forced. Our our brains are forced into uh, different spaces, and we have to come up. Like we're humans are incredibly um, mentally agile. If we if we're given the the space, we will come up with stuff. And uh, you know, this is why, of course, in a corporate environment, a lot of um, employers now will try to schedule free time into the week when they're like, "This is your creative." afternoon go go think and be creative but of course that's very it's a very hard thing to 
mandate. But if people actually have like a full weekend or an afternoon to wander and think and feel, uh, there can be a lot of innovation. Like there is an argument for employers that downtime um, will will give them better, more productive, more interesting, more engaged employees. You know, certainly without that time, people, you know, the opposite happens and people shut down. And we all know what it's like when you're fatigued and overworked, you're not feeling that, that level of, you're not coming up with, you know, crazy new ideas. You're just getting through. I, I typically find my most creative time of the day is early in the morning, right after a good night's sleep. I'll get up and I'll, oh, I'll, it's amazing those. how the, the thoughts flow. So there, yes. there is some truth to that for sure. And And so what would you suggest? People are listening to the show right now and they're saying, well, yeah, this sounds a lot like me. And, you know, it, it just seems like I, I work really hard all week. I want to really maximize that that weekend off. And then they just find themselves sort of in that trap again. What would you what would you recommend to, to a listener saying, you know, how to how to back off on the on the on the scheduling or how to maximize, I guess, your weekends without trying too hard? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's I always feel like wary of this of the answer to that question because i don't think it's entirely an individual decision right like i think that there's a kind of collect a shift from a kind of collective mindset around work and leisure that says yes we as a society have to agree that it's a value it's a fundamental value that people will not be ground down and that people can have lives outside of work and i do think a lot of that has to come um from workplace practices organized labor, government. Um, and I don't want the onus to always be on the individual. But if we are, you know, if we can continue to fight <laughs> for those for those kinds of advances in our day-to-day lives, I do think there's things we can do and try to do. And I, like, I always think of it as we're so good at work. Like we're, you know, so many people really want to be good workers. They They do feel their identity tied to work. So they want to succeed at it. Like, I think we have to kind of flip that and become as vigilant and as excellent at leisure. Um, and that means being really protective and of free time on weekends, really turning off your phone. It's very basic. <laughs> Turn it off, leave it at home. My God, can you imagine? Leave it at home, go out, go be in the world. And again, COVID, right? I know it's hard. So find safe ways to do that within the limitations that so many of us are still under. Um you know, nature is an incredible solve for stress and overwork, um, shift, a shift in the environment. There's lots of research around actual, you know, exposure to greenery and air. And, and not just the Amazon rainforest uh, of, of shopping. No. You know, I yeah. think shopping yeah. has really kind of replaced a lot of that leisure time. And it, and it sort of perpetuates itself. The more you shop, the more you owe, the more you owe, the more you have to work. And it, it according to your book, it seemed like shopping is a big replacement nowadays for people's leisure time, which seems really out of whack. Well, it's out of whack. It's also very predictable, isn't it? Because we're, you know, really, the system is designed for work and spend. That's a, the economist Julia Shore came up with that idea of work and spend culture, where we work to have money to spend, and then we've spent our money, so we work, and round and round and round we go, right? Um and I think when we have our free time, we are inclined to, to spend, and not only because we're living in a consumerist culture where we've sort of been programmed to find comfort in consumption, um, and uh, particularly where it comes to like, you know, 
maybe our clothes or domestic situations where there's a constant urge to upgrade, right? And present. And um, and some people, you know, I'm not like down on shopping. Like I don't want to be some people, you know, they're definitely I've enjoyed it, you know, an afternoon shopping. Everybody does. But is it becoming, is shopping, here's the two things people do most on weekends, according to most surveys, shopping and chores. So, okay, we all have to do a little bit of each. Probably shopping is more pleasurable. Um, can we contain those two elements so that there's the majority of time on a weekend or whatever your days off are, if you are lucky enough to have them, is not filled with those kinds of activities? Because those are kind of, those aren't um, activities that are going to get you into that flow state that we were talking about, that kind of that kind of zone for creativity and ideas. And they're also um, not usually communal activities. Uh, and that's another um, big problem with the erosion of the weekend is that the weekend, you know, traditionally is a time for people to come out of themselves into their communities and to nurture those relationships that are not just work relationships, not just relationships that are going to help them advance professionally, but help them advance personally as people, right? So, um, and one of the things that we know is happening is a real rise in loneliness and a sense of isolation, um, and that those strong and deep bonds that humans require to be human, uh, those, those social connections are uh, it, it jeopardized by a work-first life. Um, so on the weekend, if you want to feel good and you have a bit of time, go be with people, talk to people, call people, whatever it is, even if it's an hour, a half hour, is it a neighbor, is it a friend? Um, check the strength, you know, it's time to take a gauge and like measure the strength of those bonds and invest your time there. And that will come back tenfold because we know that that actually makes people physically feel better, like their heart rates and their, you know, like, they, you know, everybody knows the kind of energized effects of other people in their lives. But if we don't have time or we feel or we're filling that time or forced to fill that time with consumption and chores and uh, commitments that don't create those those feelings that sort of those feelings of meaning and uh, you know grace and respect the things you get out of relationships then of course um, we're gonna feel pretty lousy right and we are gonna right. be more anxious and burnt out. Yep, binge watching eight hours of Netflix is not necessarily going to rejuvenate you and make you feel whole as a person when you when you get done. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one because I you know. That's called passive leisure. Those kinds of activities um, that are the kind of collapse activities, right? Passive watching Netflix, watching sports rather than doing sports. Um, but where we feel more rejuvenated is, of course, in any kind of action, um, an active leisure. So uh, maybe instead of watching the game for most of Sunday or games back to back, go play one for a little bit and then you can go back to your lounger, right? Or whatever it is. Get outside with friends, with the family to go for a walk, yeah. play some games, but just don't right. couch potato and expect that on Monday morning, you're going to be looking and feeling your best. Yeah. It's not going to give you back that um, energy and also that sense of purpose um, and meaning that a uh, more engaged leisure time does. So Katrina, what do you hope someone takes away after reading your book? I guess I kind of would want to know who's reading it. So if there's anyone with power, <laughs> an employer or uh, a someone in government, I hope that they would look 
closely at the policies that are in place that are keeping people locked into this cult of overwork. I would hope that as a society, we have continued to have these conversations that I do believe are beginning to happen about what it does to people to be caught in precarious work and to be without um, a sense of security around work. Um, for on a personal level, I hope people can kind of do a little bit of a weekend audit um, or free time audit if they don't have a conventional weekend and sort of ask that question of, well, why, if I get to my Sunday night, do I not feel rejuvenated in the way that I should? I did have this time. And what did I do with, you know, my one precious life, as the you know, poet has said. So uh, I think, you know, just paying attention um, and granting yourself permission to be off, to be someone outside of work. You know, it's okay. Like, it's okay to be... Um, in love with your work, people will often say to me when we talk about these issues, but I really like my work and I don't, and I don't want to not be working, you know, and that's okay. That's fine. But, you know, we all know that at the end of life, very few people are uh, on their deathbed saying, I wish I'd worked more. Right. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but I find it really motivating. <laughs> yeah, what I'm brought you the greatest sense of satisfaction in life was not the weekends that you worked, but the time you spent with family making real connections and, and again, developing yourself as a, a well-rounded individual contributing to society. So it, it exactly. sounds like pretty logical. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Katrina, so. this is, this has been a fantastic conversation. Where can people go to find your book? Oh yeah. You can get the book most places. You can check out my website, katrinaonstead.com. I there's buttons there to order. Um, and I really hope that people do. All right. Thank you so much for taking your time on a Saturday, Katrina, to be on my show. It's been a real pleasure. My guest today has been Katrina Ownstad, author of The Weekend Effect. To get more information about how you can take back your weekends, be sure to visit the show notes for this episode or visit the Grit Nation website at www.gritnationpodcast.com. Until next time, this is Joe Cadwell reminding you to work safe, work smart, and stay union strong. Since you're from Toronto, my other big podcast crush, hate to say it that way, but uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Pushkin Industries. Oh, yeah. Malcolm is just from amazing, Ontario. that guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's from Ontario, right. not from Toronto. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, he went, to, he went to U of T, though. I know lots of people. I, I once went, da went dancing with him. No way. And, he and is a such an awkward, like, funny guy. <laughs> he's such a character, that guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this was like 20 years ago. But oh, really? Yeah, yeah, and he was just getting going at the New Yorker. He just sort of hitting it big. And yeah, yeah it was, he's, a, he's a neat guy. And he's great at what he does, for sure. Oh, man. Yeah, his whole team and that whole Pushkin Industries that he's developed, you know, to bring yes. in other just high-end podcasters like that. Is, uh, it, I, I listen to this, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to keep, you know, massaging the craft and learning the skills from the masters like those guys. We all are. Yeah. yeah. But it's yeah. a great, I mean, I think it's a very welcome medium. Like it's not, it's not like there's such a gap between right. like the DIY podcast and that like production value is somewhat, but you don't, it's never really that right. It's no. all the story. Yeah. Yeah. And you get so. direct access. I mean, you can't get closer to someone's brain than an earbud in their head for, you yeah. know, 25 to 45 minutes. It's, it's a very intimate relationship between the host and the listener. So yeah, it's a great medium. I love it.